0: Hi, and welcome to Cosmos Science Daily, where journalists at the Cosmos Newsroom report on the latest research and discoveries and explain the science behind the headline news. Today's newsroom journalist and chemistry whiz, Ellen Fidion, is talking to us about how nanotechnology and bug wings can help us keep food fresher, with yours truly, Dr. Sophie Calabretto, applied mathematician, fluid mechanist, and avid eater of fresh food. So, Ellen, let's start from the
1: beginning What do insect wings have to do with food packaging? So um, apparently quite a lot. There's a team of um, Australian and Japanese researchers who've developed this um, coating for plastic food packaging um, that they say should keep food fresh for longer. And their initial idea for it came from insect wings, from cicada and dragonfly wings. So it leans on this whole like field of bioinspiration.
0: Okay, so I love this bio-inspiration thing. So just correct me if I'm wrong, but as I see it, Mother Nature has some great ideas and we're still garbage at a lot of things. And so this is kind of like intellectual property theft from the universe for our benefit.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, like, I mean, it's it's not fair to assume that nature's going to be or that we're going to be as good at coming up with something as nature is because nature's had millions of years to That's do true. it. That's so, true. Head start. Head you start. Know, we, we have, like, a few, I don't know. Five, ten? Um, and so, um, yeah, trying to get um, – so so the idea is like taking ideas from nature. So there's stuff like um, – it, it appears all over the place. Japanese bullet trains, their noses are based on kingfisher beaks because um, apparently they're super aerodynamic so it makes them go faster. Yeah, I believe that. I guess, yeah, a kingfisher beaks would penetrate the air in a good way. Interesting. So, so it's been used all over the place um, and it's been particularly used for like surfaces as well, looking at surfaces in nature and how they interact with the rest of the environment and how we can kind of manipulate that, steal that idea.
0: So this is where you're going to tell me about how our stolen surface ideas from nature are going to give us some kind of antibacterial material?
1: Yes. Yeah, exactly. So nature's full of what they call um, self-cleaning surfaces. So apparently uh, lotus leaves are really famous here. If you've ever seen like water Roll across a lotus leaf. It's it's hydrophobic. It repels water, and the reason it does that is because it's got these these tiny tiny little um, bumps all over it at the nano level. Um, so yeah, lotus leaves are self cleaning, um, and they think it's because because of this like hydrophobicity, this water repelling thing.
0: Okay, so I've heard so I have heard of hydrophobicity. I've never said it like that before. Uh, because as a fluid mechanist, sometimes I'm interested in how fluid interacts with certain things. But I've never thought about it in terms of killing bacteria. I just see it as applying a slip surface to things that then we can use to control turbulence, which is like a completely different kettle of fish. So if if like if lotus leaves are good at getting rid of the water, is that the same as killing bacteria? Where does it all fit in? Tell me about these insect wings. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very confused, Ellen. I'm not sure if you can tell.
1: <laughs> no, sorry. I So I started on lotus leaves. The reason was um, uh, these researchers at RMIT University, they've um, actually a group of researchers at RMIT have developed the self-cleaning plastic that uses lotus leaves. Oh, wow. Okay. Or like, sorry, like inspired by lotus leaves. Sure. So because they're hydrophobic, water lands on them and it rolls off very, very quickly. You would have seen this. You'd know this for yeah, um, yeah fluid mechanics. Um, and because it's rolling off very quickly, water is really good at dissolving stuff. So it's really good at taking bacteria with it.
0: Right. So essentially it's just it's the water that's doing the cleaning, but the, the water is leaving very efficiently in a way that we like. Okay. Yes.
1: Cool. Yeah, Exactly. So another group of RMIT researchers were looking at lotus leaves to see if they could use them to make something that's like actually antibacterial as well as self-cleaning. And unfortunately, they're not as good at that. So they started looking at other surfaces and insect wings are something that popped up as being both antibacterial and hydrophobic and self-cleaning. So they thought maybe they're going to be so hydrophobic that they can really get rid of these bacteria more effectively. That's really
0: cool. I guess I'd never ever thought about insects needing to clean their wings before but I'm sure that's quite important.
1: Yeah yeah and like they can't I mean obviously they can't just like go in the water to wash things off because they're so delicate. That's true
0: you can't just roll around in the ocean and hope for the best can you? So they're using so we're now
1: thinking about insect wings to do this. Uh, Did So what did they do? Did this work? Yeah. Interestingly, it worked, but not in the way the researchers thought it was going to. So they looked, um, about 10 years ago, they were looking at insect wings under an electron microscope. They found cicada and dragonfly wings in particular have these little um, nanometer sized spikes on them, sort of tens, dozens of nanometers. So for context, um, a bacterial cell is usually between about 500 and 5,000 nanometers in size. So sort of a significant fraction, but still smaller. And so just quickly for everyone playing at home, a nanometer is,
0: so for my memory, it's 10 to the negative 9. So that's like one, a nanometer is like one billionth of a meter.
1: Yeah, or a millionth of a millimeter.
0: That's easier. Yeah, a millionth of a millimeter. Everyone think about it like that rather than one billionth of a meter. That's too big for my brain.
1: <laughs> I like to think I'm over a billion nanometers tall. That's nice <sighs> because I'm also uh, five foot two. So it's it's nice to be like, no, I'm actually, I'm, I'm taller than you think I am. Exactly. <laughs> In this scale of choice, I'm a very <laughs> tall person. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, they had these little nanometer spikes, and they thought the spikes were going to be super hydrophobic. They were going to get the bacteria off really, really effectively. But actually, the spikes didn't need water, they just killed the bacteria on their own. So, the bacteria will land on this spike. And then they looked at the like cell walls of the bacteria and discovered that the, the spikes could actually like rupture and broke, break the cell walls. So there's this mechanical strain they're causing, they're like causing that's killing off the bacteria.
0: Right. So rather than the bacteria rolling off with the water, that we're impaling them on spikes like a horrible spike pit. Yes,
1: yes, basically. Well, the researcher I talked to very deliberately didn't say impaling or stabbing. She kept talking about mechanical strain and rupturing the cell wall. But, like, I I imagine that was basically what was happening. Like, the bacteria lands on it and it just can't, like, handle that surface.
0: Yeah, because I guess you've got – because what is it? Forces – no, pressure is force over area. So if you've got the same force, small area, greater pressure. Yeah, that makes sense. I believe it. I believe in science. Okay, so – so the idea is now we're going to take these nanopillars or what I'm going to call these spiky pits of nanodeath and we're going <laughs> to use those to make a plastic that is antibacterial or we
1: just is the idea just to sort of mimic that physical structure? Yeah, 100%. Um so that's where the Japanese team of researchers came in. They are specialized in this thing called nanofabrication, which is making these tiny little nano surfaces and they made a um surface that's covered in these little nanopillars or they made a bunch of different surfaces covered in nanopillars of different heights which they then um shipped back to rmit so the rmit researchers could test how effective they were at killing bacteria
0: and just i want to digress for a second what how
1: do you how do you manufacture something on the nanoscale so the technique they used it keeps they keep describing it as a really simple technique which boggles my mind um they call it nano imprint lithography right um so essentially that's making this mold with like tiny tiny patterns in it using um a variety of different things like maybe a laser or something and then imprinting it onto your target substance so in this case it was like a plasticky kind of polymer that they were printing it onto
0: so here's a question that's irrelevant: Can the <laughs> can the stamp that they use to print, is that antibacterial? Or oh, no, it will have reverse spikes. It's reverse spikes, yeah, so it would have holes in it, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it would, yeah. So let's ignore that question. Okay, so now we've got – we've, we've nano-imprint lithography these tiny spikes and we've sent them back to RMIT to test. And so the question that I would really like answered is did this work?
1: Yeah, it did. Um, so different different spikes worked differently. They discovered that the ones that were 60 nanometers high, the nanopillars that were 60 nanometers high, were the best. They killed 70% of the bacteria that landed on them in um, up to about 20 minutes. So very, very effective at murdering all these bacteria.
0: Yeah, wow. 20, although 20 minutes seems long, but then bacteria is not scary. So I think 20 minutes is probably... Is fine we don't need it to work any quicker for bacteria do we
1: no it doesn't it doesn't need to take like it takes a little bit longer than that to replicate I think so okay. um. oh that's perfect
0: and then so the question is can we can we use this plastic so we've now we've made our antibacterial plastic that works you know once we have the right size nanopillars can we make things out of this plastic to be antibacterial
1: yeah, absolutely. So at the moment it only works, it's this like a little acrylic polymer and it only works if you coat it on top of hard plastic. Okay. Um, so they're working, first they want to see if they can make it even more effective, get it to, I don't know, 90%, 100% efficacy at killing bacteria. Um, and they also want to see if they can get it onto soft plastics. But, um, yeah, they think theoretically they could end up using this plastic coating to keep food fresher for longer.
0: I mean, that's I've got nothing to argue about. That sounds perfect. That's amazing. Okay, Ellen, so just before we go, we have been talking about dragonflies, and so I did do a little bit of research about dragonflies, not too much because I wanted to be wowed by all of this new information, but I stumbled across a few dragonfly facts, and I, I just want to run them by you to see if you've heard of them in your dragonfly research for your story.
1: Of course, of course. Um, as it happens, I have some dragonfly facts as well. Get out of town. So So maybe we can have a bit of an exchange. I hope they're not the same facts. That would be incredibly awkward.
0: All right, number one. Okay, Ellen, did you know that the fastest insect on Earth, according to Guinness World Records, which is obviously a peer-reviewed publication, is the Australian dragonfly? So in 1927, again, I don't know how they measured this, but in 1927, a southern giant dana, whose, um, I was going to say chemical name, what do we call it when it's an animal? (laughs) Whose scientific name is Ostrophlebia costalis was timed traveling at 96 kilometers an hour. That's super fast. Isn't that, that's too fast. I don't I, like all I'm saying is I'm now doubting the fact that I've just read out to you because How on earth did they measure that? How did they know it was the same dragonfly? I know it's like in 1927. I don't know how we measured
1: dragonfly speeds in 1927. Okay, so you didn't know that. I did not know that. That's extraordinary. What is your fact? Number one. So um, did you know that there's one species of dragonfly called the globe skimmer, um, which appears on every continent? And I don't know how fast it can fly, but it can make migration journeys of over 7,000 kilometers. So even though it appears on every continent, they- they've actually figured out that dragonflies on different continents are related to each other. Like there's genetic mixing there.
0: And you know what? I did actually know that only because I cheated and I've actually covered the, uh, the globe the globe skimmer in a different podcast last year so that's cheating that it doesn't count I shouldn't I wouldn't have organically known that so I think that's it's still a really it's a really good fact Ellen okay next one yeah, I'm just my, condes- my condescending encouragement of your facts. No, it's a great. It's absolutely crazy. Like they literally everywhere. They they can cross the Indian Ocean, and in fact, from memory, they think that they looked at the energy sort of input output, and they reckon part of it actually has to be aligned with like they fly on currents in the air, and if there's not currents going in the correct direction, they they don't actually they can't create enough energy to like travel the distance of the ocean. Like it was very, I hope that's right. If anyone's listening at home and I have misquoted a thing that I did last year and I can't remember, please write into Cosmos. Um, Okay, next fact. Dragonflies are insectivores, right, which means that they eat insects, but they like basically control the mosquito population. So a single dragonfly can eat, now it says 30 to hundreds of mosquitoes per day, which I guess, I know they're very different numbers. (laughs) (laughs) That's so precise. It is, like, (laughs) exactly. We've never seen a dragonfly eat, like, fewer than 30 mosquitoes in one day, but then they can (laughs) eat
1: a whole bunch. Uh, So much more. Is that, we're talking about Japanese encephalitis last week. Is releasing dragonflies a a good population control strategy? Do you know what? I think it should be. Because also I think dragonflies are quite pretty and I tend
0: to react better to a dragonfly than if I see a mosquito. Because if I see a mosquito, normally I want to kill it. And now I especially want to kill it because I don't want to um, die of Japanese
1: encephalitis virus. Yeah, fair. Very fair. Do you have any more? I I do. I do. I have another fact for you. Um Did you know that military training areas have become these kind of bizarre ecosystems that support dragonflies and they're actually worried that um, if they start decommissioning them, um, then that's going to threaten dragonfly populations? There was one study about four years ago in the Czech Republic that found that threatened dragonfly species do much, much better inside military training areas than they do outside.
0: Okay, no. (laughs) I did very much not know that and I would barely believe it. That is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Can
1: you just leave a, a military training area without the military training? A dragonfly is responsible for war? Possibly. The dragonflies benefit from us spending a lot of money on war. So, I mean, that's another good use of defense fe- spending, right? That's crazy. Well, I loved our fact off. Just then, Ellen, I don't know who won, but I really
0: enjoyed that. I think you won. And uh, thank you to everyone else for listening. So keep an ear out for our next instalment of Cosmos Science Daily. This podcast was brought to you by Cosmos, a publication of the Royal Institution of Australia.